It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, Duke fans, and welcome to episode number 587 of the Duke Basketball Roundup. It is Sunday, January 28, 2024, and I don't know if you've exhaled yet, but that was a very close game yesterday that we have to recap here on the Duke Basketball Roundup. Before we get into all that, I am Donald Wine. I'm your host for this episode. Jason's still out somewhere in the South, South Atlantic. I'm here again with Scott Rich. Scott Rich, what's up, man? Good morning. It's a big day for us. Recovering from yesterday's heart stopper, and then hopefully another heart stopper of a game this afternoon for the Lions. If it's a heart stopper, I think the Lions are in good shape. We're we're somehow built for that. Uh, <laughs> but yes, I did not think yesterday was going to be the heart stopper of the weekend. But here we are, seventy-two to seventy-one, the final score. Tyrese Proctor's two free throws with 0.4 seconds left are what seals it. For the Duke Blue Devils, they moved to 15 and four on the season, six and two in the ACC. This is a game that was back and forth. Scott, 12 lead changes, 11 times the game was tied. There is a point where we were down four. We had three steals from Mark uh, Jared McCain in 56 seconds, and then it, it, it still wasn't over until, as we mentioned, the very final whistle. Uh, and, and you know what? We'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's first get into some of the headlines that people had. I got a lot of them after the game, of course. There were some, actually, there was one that came in at halftime in this game, and I'm like, man, person who sent in at halftime missed a lot of the second half, because the second half... That's a lot of faith right there. Yeah, that's a solid faith, and I appreciate it, but man, 
that was a lot. I mean, that was a lot, especially with this game and how it was going on. Tom Wildermuth, I think, had the best one. He just goes, in all caps, Australia only serves ice water. Of course, relating to Tyrese Proctor's clutch ice veined free throws at the very end. Josh Levinson, he had Duke nearly, I'm sorry, Devils nearly stall until Proctor shots fall and the defense stymies Hall. I thought that one was good. That's good. We're going with some rhymes as opposed to some alliteration. We've got some variety here. Absolutely. Uh, we have we have Eric Bishop. Eric Bishop just simply put, I have no more nails to bite off. That that sums up this game quite well. And John Gretlin always writes in with good ones. He said, hold that tiger. Proctor's threes send tigers ragged, tagged, and bagged. What do you think, Scott? Oh, I mean, I'm not even going to try the best any of those. The the rhyming is just top notch, next tier after the you know the pattern of alliteration on the the pods I've been on. So I'm not even going to try the best any of those. Those were fantastic. Yeah, they were good. They were good. Shout out to everybody who wrote emails, uh, wrote headlines, and again, you can write them to dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Of course, we have a game in less than 48 hours or a little bit more than 48 hours. Uh, we will be done with a second game of a back to back. We will talk about Virginia Tech after the break but first let's get into this Clemson game again 72 to 71 the final score and Scott I'm gonna let you take the good here I'm gonna let you start with the good there was a couple of different places we can go but what do you have what was the top thing that you think helped win this game for Duke look I I think a theme of this game is there were some very obvious things that we'll talk about Tyrese Proctor at the end of the game but I think there were a lot of under the radar storylines that will potentially get overlooked based off of the end of game chaos. I think one of those from the good is Mark Mitchell had another fantastic first half. He had 10 points, I think about midway through the first half. He was the Mark Mitchell that we were expecting coming into the year. And that continued in the second half. There was a concerted effort to get Mark Mitchell the ball on the post. When he and Ryan Young were in the game together, especially when Kyle had his foul troubles, there was a lot of high-low with Ryan at the high post feeding Mark at the low post. That seems to be a new element of the game plan that John has implemented that's working. We talked on Thursday about how important it would be to get the bigs of Clemson in foul trouble. And that ended up being a storyline perhaps later than we expected. But it was less Kyle Filipowski doing that and more Mark Mitchell doing that. More Mark Mitchell getting in the post on Ian Shefflin and drawing some of those fouls as opposed to Kyle. I like that. I like that sort of inverted look that we do with either Ryan or more often Kyle. We're basically saying Mark Mitchell's shot is what it is. Let's get him the ball where he can operate, where against most teams he's going to have a mismatch. Unless we forget, Mark was one for one from three. He sunk to corner three that he was making all last year. So, again, small sample size. All his three-point shooting is going to be small sample size. But anything that he's making is going to be uh, you know, momentum going forward. So, again, not the headline Mark Mitchell's performance. But I think a really important subplot, especially for this team's long-term aspirations. And an interesting thing about that three-pointer is, again, early in the game, he had a he had a shot in the corner where he could have taken it, and the defense came out and, and the defender kind of you know ran out to put a hand in his face. And like halfway through, you kind of feel the defense go, "Oh wait, this is Mark Mitchell, he's not going to shoot the three. But before he could do that, 
Mark Mitchell had already pump faked and drew and drove along the baseline. And I think he got a shot off and missed it, but it was one of those plays where, Hey, just him being able to tell people, Hey, I made this three or even just like, you know, from months past or a month past where he said, Hey, I hit a couple threes was just enough to give him that token defense. When he hit that three in the corner, the defense has started to slide back a little because at a certain point they're like, oh, he's not shooting this because every time we give him the ball in the corner, he's pump faking and driving to the lane. So let me just back off a little bit. Then he hits the corner three again. It keeps the defense honest on him. Uh, and that's what we want from him because when he's able to do that, then he's able to cook on the inside, as you mentioned during the game. I want to talk about the player who I thought for the entire stretch of the game was the most consistent at being present in this ball game, and that's Jared McCain. Jared McCain, yep. 21 points, five rebounds, two assists, three for seven from three, and as I mentioned at the top, three huge steals in 51 seconds late in the game to help Duke at that point, who was down four, come back and take the lead. And, of course, this, this game went back and forth, back and forth. But Jared McCain, there were points during this game where I was texting some of my friends, and I said, Jared McCain is the only one playing this ball game right now. He was active on defense. He was making his shots, taking his shots on offense. And even when he wasn't making threes, right, he missed four. But it felt like, and, and the team wasn't, for a team that was shooting, you know, almost 50% for the game from three, we missed a lot of open threes. So it felt frustrating at a time. This game did not come easy to us. And that's credit to Clemson and just, the, you know, them trying to take us out of our game. But Jeremy Kane the whole time was, even killed Jeremy Kane that we've been told by many people is who he is. He was level-headed. He was able to get the, you know, make the moments when he, when we had them, he's able to make threes when we needed them. He's again on defense. He was able to grab rebounds. He was able to make steals when we needed them. And I felt like he was ever present in this game. And I think the rest of the team at a certain point, there was a point where like, Oh, it, it's like, they're not on the floor. Right. We, we saw some guys that had, had some struggles but even the guys who had decent, you know, good games, Jeremy McCain, I think, was the only one that was throughout the entire game. I knew that Jeremy McCain was on the floor. He was active. He was energetic. And he was trying to make a play. It's interesting. If, you know, if this Duke team is healthy, Jared McCain's probably number four on the opposition scouting report. You're probably thinking about Tyrese Proctor and Jeremy Roach and Kyle Filipowski before Jared McCain. And if you're doing that, you're going to be in trouble because the – very high-level scouting report is Jared McCain's a pretty darn good shooter. But he's shown over this last stretch that he is so much more than the shooter. His creativity around the rim for someone who's only 6'2", his size, is extremely impressive. The scoop shots that he's making, he's making consistently, add a whole other element to his game. So again, if he's number four on the scouting report, it's probably not going to be there for much longer the way he's playing. But he's going to keep having those opportunities on really hard closeouts. He's going to have opportunities to attack the basket when teams are just, you know, coming up on him really, really tight on the on defense. And he's making teams pay for that. He's making teams pay quickly, decisively, and with confidence. And especially with the injuries, especially with, you know, Jeremy Roach really a show of himself all game. We don't know how long that injury is going to last. Tyrese is still, it's you know sort of recovering from those ankle that ankle sprain which can linger we need that jared mccain and as you said he was the only guy who played at his top level from start to finish yesterday which 
was a huge, huge factor in Duke pulling out the win. I think the the thing about his ability to create and score on the dribble drive is probably the most like surprising thing this year because we talked about you know before the season everyone's like yo this dude can shoot from anywhere in the gym and he's proven that he can do that but the way that he gets to the rim and also as you mentioned the way he's able to create shots he you know he went down in one play and he kind of did that scoop shot that went off the backboard the next drive he you know he did the same drive and the guy was like oh the scoop shot ready for it and he did another scoop shot that was like from a different angle that hit the you know, hit the backboard at a different angle and still went in. And again, when you do that, when you're able to kind of, you know, offer some deception with your dribble drive and create your shot, he doesn't need that much space, whether he's shooting the ball or whether he's driving. And I think that's the most important thing is that it, even in traffic, as you mentioned, he still found his way to the basket and able to get a shot off and get it, uh, get it on frame where even if he's missing it, you have a Mark Mitchell or, or, or hopefully a Cal Filipowski there to rebound and you know go up with a second chance point. So I really appreciated that. I think we got to talk about the man with the ice water in his veins, Tyrese Proctor, because he had some huge, huge threes. Four for six from three. He's at 18 points, five rebounds, two assists, two steals, and two massive free throws at the very end when we were down one. He goes up and and, and we should talk about it now because it, everyone else seems to be talking about it. Tyrese Proctor, of course, drives. He gets the ball coming up the coming up the block. We're down one. PJ Hall has just sunk two free throws to give Clemson the lead, and he comes down. He gets around his defender, and his defender, first of all, chops him on the shoulder or at least on the arm as he's dribble driving and trying to you know switch the ball from his left hand to his right hand. He gets the ball into his right hand despite that, and then goes up for the shot, gets the foul drawn. And it was a foul. Uh, first of all, he he got he got hit in several places on the arm, on the shot and before the shot. And I know Clemson and and Brad Brownell was was furious about that after the game. But look, that's a foul on any street corner. That's a foul on any block. That's a foul on any any gym in America. Um, and that's a foul. Even if, I know Roger Ayers was calling another game because I was watching it. But Roger Ayers would have called that foul. TV Teddy would have called that foul. So this is not something where there was a whole Duke gets all the calls moment. This was a Clemson fouled Tyrese Proctor moment. And of course, Tyrese Proctor knocks down those two free throws. And then Mark Mitchell on defense stands where he needs to on the inbounds play. Of course, they have to do some wild, you know, throw down uh, the throw down the floor. And PJ Hall runs into him, asks for the foul, doesn't get it. Mark Mitchell has every right to that basketball as well as PJ Hall. PJ Hall has to run through Mark Mitchell to get his place of the ball. And that's ball game. I know Clemson might be upset about it. I know Joe Girard had to be restrained by the by his uh, coaching staff after the game. I don't know what he was going to do to the refs. Like he's, he's that's that was my thought too. Is what is his plan here? Yeah, what was your plan? I don't know what you I don't know what you plan on doing. You know, he got a little bit of that from uh from from his old buddy Jim Beheim. <laughs> he's done that before in Cameron. But I, I think at the end of the day, Tyrese Proctor should be the story here. It's not the foul that was called on him. It was the fact that he played well throughout the game. And again, when we weren't making free throws, and we'll talk about that, he made two massive ones to seal it. So I'm, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit here. I agree with you 100% on the Mark Mitchell thing at the end. That, that was offensive pass interference. Mark Mitchell <laughs> had his position. He didn't go into P.J. Hall. P.J. Hall backed into him, and it looked bad because there were bodies flying. But 
Right. Mark Mitchell had his position established. There's no controversy on that in my end. On the Proctor play, the foul on the shot was a foul, 100%. Beforehand, I don't think that was a great last possession. I don't. I think that, so, and I think that he, he didn't quite get past his defender as much as he just sort of tried to bully ball in. It, It never felt like Tyrese was trying to score as much as he was trying to get foul. Mm-hmm. And again, that's a small quibble on a possession that ended up winning Duke the game. But it sort of seems like this team has some gap in their knowledge and their experience about how to attack short shot clock, end of half, end of game situations. There was something lacking in that last possession. And I think that's part of why there was this backlash because it was such a really, really ugly looking play, right? You know, you said it looked like he got fouled driving in that I'm not so sure about. I think people were right. that Tyrese initiated some of that contact on the shot. hundred percent. He got hit on the elbow. I used to, I used to ref youth basketball back in my, in my, in my younger days. And even, even then when I was, you know, refing, you know, seventh and eighth graders, I would get trained to, you know, let things go at the end of the game that you would otherwise. I refuse to do that, to be quite honest. I hate that. I think a foul is a foul. The time of the game doesn't change the rule book, Mm -hmm. right? But regardless, there is that tendency and that pattern of, oh, okay, you let things go at the end of games. So I think that's where that attitude is coming from, from the talking heads from Brad Brown now again is it's that the, cor- it's the let the players win theory right like yeah let the players win it don't let it be won by a foul call which hey look we've had some non-calls happen right like that Virginia game last year with Cal Filipowski just getting basically thrown into the fourth row like and, and then getting hurt in the process like those, I mean it happens on both both ends I think the issue is yeah it wasn't a bad it wasn't a good execution of the play but sometimes the lack of execution is what leads to the foul that leads to, you know, you getting to the line, right? Like some it's not, it wasn't like a bailout call. It was, it was a foul. Oh yeah. But the foul was, the foul was, was kind of the catalyst. The catalyst was the fact that Tyrus Proctor didn't execute that play well, but I feel like in a game where nothing came easy for the Duke blue devils, winning it didn't come easy too. And even that play didn't come easy. Oh, definitely. And, and, you know, despite my, you know, over analysis there, Tyrese deserves all the credit in the world for being strong enough to keep possession of the ball to battle through that live watching that game. I was thinking we're not going to get a shot off here. That's what that possession looked like. So Mm -hmm. all the credit in the world to Tyrese for having the strength and the ball handling skills to put, to get through that and to get something off. Um, And then obviously again, you make those two free throws. That's clutch. That's hard to do. Doesn't matter if you're a 50% shooter or a 90% shooter. He took care of business, just like PJ Hall took care of business in the previous possession, just like Kyle Filipowski finally took care of business, making the and one on the possession before. So, as you said, it wasn't pretty. There are things that, you know, I would hope John Shire would take as some coaching moments from how to execute in that situation that, you know, are are taken in abstraction from what actually happened. But again, if you show that clip 
and you don't show the clock. 90% of refs think that's a foul. If you show mm-hmm. it in context, you know, people, it becomes a talking point. So I think that that's something that'll get blown over. I think Brad Brownell's, you know, frustration during the press conference was a little, a little odd hill to die on, uh, you know, when there were so many other factors that led to that game uh, being won by Duke and lost by Clemson. But again, Thank goodness it happened. I don't care how pretty it is. I don't think you care how it looked. Duke got the win that it needed to keep so many of its aspirations uh, still in goal. It was it was low hanging fruit, right? Like he knew. How, how do you keep this relevant? Yo, I can just talk about talk about that final play, and that'll be what's talked about on College Game Day and Sports Center and all that. And sure enough, it was. It's it's not. It's no secret. Everyone has a script to how to get on Sports Center <laughs> after a controversial call at the end of a Duke game. So I think the last thing I have in a good is I want to credit our defense because again, in a game where the offense did not come easy, we made it where it was very hard for Clemson to score as well. That The final score being 72, 71 doesn't really indicate how, you know, how we were on defense. We held them to 29% from the floor in the first half, 38% for the entire game. We held them 30% on threes. I, I think when it came down to it, Clemson had to work just as hard for their points as we had to work for for our points. And that's a testament to, you know, quite a few guys, you know, again, Mark, you know, J- Jeremy came with the steals, Mark McCain on uh, Mark, Mark McCain, Jeremy McCain on the steals, Mark Mitchell on defense. Um, and I thought our perimeter defense again, you know, limiting in their threes. I know, I know Joe Girard got a few of them, but other than that, it didn't really feel like there was a guy out there that was other, you know, PJ Hall had a couple, but like there wasn't a guy that was out there, actively killing us from beyond the arc and i think you know shooting 30 percent again you you mentioned clemson will look at that final play but they had plenty of opportunities to win this ball game on the floor and our defense kept the kept us in it and kept them out of it two subplots again to you know i i've got a little bit of a theme here that uh this episode but they sort of go under the radar we're probably going to talk about kyle and his foul trouble in the bad section of the game he also had four blocks mm-hmm. in this game. He also ended up, he only played 24 minutes because of that foul trouble, but he was a plus nine while he was on the court. I thought this might have been one of Kyle's best games. Not only did he have those four blocks, but there were a lot of shots that he was contesting and he was altering at the rim. He's seven feet tall. We don't talk about that enough. You don't have to be able to jump out of the gym like Derek Lively to affect people at the rim when you're seven feet tall. He did that while he was on the floor. Again, he's got to be able to stay on the floor, but that was something that contributed a lot to P.J. Hall's slow start, something that, again, gets lost in overanalyzing the final two minutes of the game. The other thing, Sean Stewart played seven minutes today. First five of those minutes were really good. The first five of those minutes, uh, especially in the first half, when, again, we saw this big lineup with Flip, Stewart, and Mitchell, he was playing very, very well defensively. He's showing that he really is a one through five switch defender. He is probably, I think he might be Duke's best one-on-one defender right now. The issue is the last two minutes in the second half were a little bit ugly. He Mm -hmm. missed a couple defensive assignments. He essentially was indirectly responsible for a turnover where Tyrese Proctor was expecting him to come out and set a screen that he didn't. And there was this miscommunication that led to a travel. 
that's something that he has to continue to learn those, you know, the switches and the defensive assignments and rotations. He's still learning. But when it comes to, okay, if there's a pick and roll switch, can Sean Stewart defend whoever he switched on to? The answer to that question is yes. And I think that, again, if Duke can sort of manage his minutes nice, smartly, and put him in positions to succeed, put him in in sort of low leverage situations as opposed to situations where a missed rotation is going to cost them the game, I think his minutes are going to keep going up down the stretch. And again, we I, I sort of said this on Thursday, he gives Duke a changeup. His presence in the lineup is a different look that I think is something that could that could be that could win Duke a game or two down the stretch. So it's something to keep an eye on is how John Shire continues to utilize and maximize Sean Stewart's unique capabilities. So I think those two are a nice segue from the good to the bad. I want to go back to what you said about Cal Filipowski. You said Cal Filipowski had one of his best games. I think Cal Filipowski defensively games defensively. I think offensively it was a problem two for eight from the floor. He missed a lot of free throws. He got to the line 11 times when he only made five of them. He was zero for three from, from three point. Like you mentioned, all of his, his, you know, stats really are on the defensive end. He had a steal. He had the four blocks. He had four rebounds, but even the four rebounds low, low. And he struggled the entire game. And with the foul trouble, with with playing that defense, I think even when you talk about some of the defensive stands that he did have, he had to work hard to get there. And it seems lately that offensively, Kyle Filipowski, after he had that game where he was near perfect, right? Like he hit all his threes. He was near perfect from the floor. He hasn't been the same Kyle Filipowski on offense since then. He's had to work much harder for what we get. And, and this is something that we feel like we've been prepared for, right? It happened last year during the ACC. There was a point where, you know, he had that game. Uh, I forgot who it was. If it was Virginia. Oh, it was Virginia. It was, he had zero points, but he should have had two or at least one because he should have gone to the line. And after that game, he realized, well, the ACC is just way more physical than I expected it to be, and I need to be mentally ready for that. He mentioned that and then went on a tear after that. And we never had to hear about Kyle Filipowski being, you know, dumb on offense for the rest of the season. I feel like we need to have that conversation again with him. Like, hey, the ACC is physical. The ACC is going to grind you up. They're going to try and get you out of your game. They're trying to get you off the court so that they can take advantage of whoever else is in the game because you are the best player in the conference. You are one of the best players in the country. And every night, unfortunately, it is your job to play like that because if you don't, this team just feels like offensively everything doesn't come as easy when you are not at the top of your game. And so I I, I offer this as a challenge because, again, we have a game in under 48 hours. I offer this as a challenge, Kyle Filipowski. Let's, you know, let's show up and, and offensively and show the ACC that you are the best player in the ACC. There's a lot of guys right now who could lay claim to that statement. But right now, the preseason favorite was you. And I, I think offensively, he just has found a rut that he's trying to get out of. And I think what's hurting him is that he is not responding to the physicality of this conference. I would certainly hope that Kyle's up for the game on Monday after what happened in the state of Virginia to him specifically last year. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about the Virginia Tech matchup after the break. There, rather than focus on negatives from specific people, I want to focus, I want to mention two 
moments in this game that I that really st- st- stuck out to me. Duke was up 5-2 two, two minutes into the game. We're thinking, okay, this is the fastest start this Duke team has gotten out to in a while. I'm already thinking, okay, we're going to talk about how Tyree starting for the first time in a while was a little bit of a you know change in that. That switched on a dime. Jared McCain picked up a, a really dumb foul at the end of the shot clock. Questionable call. Regardless, he never should have put himself in that situation. After that foul, Clemson goes on an 8-0 run, and it goes from Duke having a 5-2 lead, where maybe we've gotten over this slow start hump, to all of a sudden it's 10-5 Clemson before the first media timeout, and we're in the same situation. We're battling back. The second situation, Duke did battle back. Duke got themselves a 12-point lead with three minutes to go. That's when the best Duke teams stretch it out. That's Mm -hmm. when you get a Cameron goes crazy moment. Duke's up 15 or 20 at half. We're ready to come out of the gate and sort of have that, you know, kill moment and put Clemson out of the game. What happens instead? We have a couple of bad, bad fouls. We send Clemson to the line, miss a couple threes that are, that are open, good chances, give up offensive rebounds. All of a sudden, instead of being 32-20 going into the half, it's 32-26. A six-point deficit is a hell of a lot different than a 12-point deficit. Those two moments, to me, sort of epitomize this idea of this could have, would have, should have been an easy win for Duke. Duke had the moments where they could have put their foot down and put Clemson out of this game, and they didn't. And if I'm, again, I'm not Coach John Shire for very many reasons, but if I were, that would be my theme over these next 48 hours, which is there has to be a killer instinct in this team. There has to be that instinct to take a five-point lead and make it a 10-point lead, take a 12-point lead and make it a 20-point lead. And that's how... Duke wins games comfortably as opposed to biting their nails off and having to rely on the refs making a call down the stretch. That's something that this Duke team, maybe it's it's still a little bit of youth. Maybe it's that inconsistency because of injuries. So another first time starting lineup, I believe, uh, this week or in this game. I think we've had five or six different starting lineups so far. Six, yeah. And I, I remember in the in the the stats game, I think Jason said there'd only be one starting lineup all year. I think he's uh lost that one by a wide margin at this point. Well, technically uh, he hasn't because we said if the four guys start, who would start with them? And he said it would always be oh. and to this point, that has remained true. We just haven't seen that lineup in like a month and a half. <laughs> okay, so he's he's staying alive by technicality, but I digress. Mm-hmm. I that's something that this Duke team has to have. If Duke goes into Chapel Hill next week and gets a five, six point lead. The difference between winning and losing might be whether they stretch that to 10 or whether they let UNC call timeout rebound and follow that up with a run of their own. They've really got to figure out what is that missing piece to having that killer instinct. I'll tell you one thing it related to that. Again, it kind of relates to an individual player, but it expands to how this team operates Jeremy Roach, of course, he went down in the Louisville game with an ankle injury after coming back from a knee injury. 
He ended up playing in this game. He didn't start, as you mentioned, but he came off the bench in the first media timeout. He still played 25 minutes, but he was largely ineffective uh, because of one of eight. He was one of eight, but also you just he didn't have the same bounce, right? Like he didn't have the same. He missed a couple free throws like it wasn't he, he just didn't have the same bounce that we're used to seeing. And because of that, it felt like this team had to go through and find killer instinct from someone else because he he's he's had it. We've seen it in games where yep. he's taken over down the stretch, but down the stretch, we knew we couldn't necessarily rely on him because he didn't have the same lift. He didn't have the same quickness. He didn't have the same agility. I think the key to this team becoming a good to elite team down the stretch into the postseason is we need to find someone else who has that killer instinct. As you mentioned, we need to find someone else who when, Hey, again, we always talk about next man up. It needs to be where, Hey, if Scott's down, yo, Donald, I got you. Like, I'm good. Like one of those things, Jason's Jason's in Antarctica. Scott rich steps up. I got that killer instinct, right? There we go. I got the killer instinct, right? So, at the end of the day, that's something that can't be taught. And that's the unfortunate thing. Someone has to, in their mind, go, I'm that dude. I'm him. And it'll emerge in the course of the play. I think the other thing is with Jeremy Roach on the court and him being hobbled by that ankle injury, people were still at first trying to defer to him because mm-hmm. they know he's got it, right? And that happens. That happens all the time. It's not a bad, necessarily a really bad thing, but it is something that this team needs to overcome in the absence of, you know, their best player when it comes to down the stretch clutch, you know, clutch gene, who else is going to have it? Who's going to step up and provide it? Because if no one else does, you get situations like this, you get situations like the pit game, you, you, you get situations like, you know, Arkansas where no one's just there, right? No one's there to back up the person in charge, and all of a sudden, what happens when the substitute shows up? Everyone, everyone runs lawless, and everyone doesn't have a plan. So I think that's the the key here. And this team, I, I don't think they'll figure it out before tomorrow. That's that's a lot to ask, but that's something over the next week we definitely need because, as we mentioned, UNC next weekend. There's no there's no room there's no margin for error in that game. You want where everyone is healthy and on their on their p's and q's. And right now, it just feels like offensively, this team is struggling to get everything that they make, which can be a good thing, but you want it to come more easily than this. One other thing, if we're, if we're looking at the, you know, some of the more subplot negatives of this game, I mentioned Sean Stewart's struggles, at least in the second half. Not Ryan Young's best game, but again, I think this was a situation where this wasn't the typical Ryan Young performance because of Flip's foul trouble. He was put in for some longer term situations that he normally wouldn't have. But again, 16 minutes and minus seven, not his best performance. Uh, Caleb Foster struggled a bit, you know, only played 20 minutes, two of six from the field. Didn't really provide that compliment that you would have hoped for uh, when Jeremy Roach was hobbled. But again, we've, we've seen that from Caleb. Caleb has been almost hot or not all year. He's he's either been scoring 15 points or scoring two. So I think that's something that we just have to accept at this point that he's a freshman guard, that that's just going to be the Caleb Foster experience as a freshman, which is not a knock. That's not a negative. That's the reality of being a freshman guard playing in the ACC. I think the other surprising thing is that we didn't see Jalen Blakes at all in this game. Yeah. I think, especially when you think about, again, we just talked about Jamie Roach, 
clearly being hobbled, um, but still getting 25 minutes, which I, I I'm okay with, I, I guess, right? Like if you, if Jeremy Rhodes is in the game, I, I, I trust him down the stretch to maybe make a play, but it seemed interesting that we didn't see Jalen Blakes, even if in an effort to conserve some of Jeremy Roach's minutes, when he clearly looked like he was laboring a bit just to get him out of the game, get him some, you know, get some more ice or get some more uh, uh, wrap on that ankle to get him back into the game. I'm surprised Jalen Blakes was a DMP. I, I think the one potential explanation for that is defense, as you, we mentioned, defense for the most part wasn't the problem this game. Offense was, right? And traditionally, we put Jalen Blakes in the game when we need that defensive spark. We had that this this game, right? That that wasn't the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I, was, I was also surprised that he didn't get some spot minutes here or there. But considering it was the offensive struggles, not the defensive struggles that sort of typified this game, perhaps makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, that, that does make sense. And and again, I think, you know, we, we've seen some offensive output from Jalen Blakes in the past, but it, it's, it's, you know, not as uh, consistent as some of the other guards that we have in the rotation. All right, Scott, we wrap up with the bad. Let's go to play of the game. What's your play of the game? There's a couple of plays that probably could do it. I, I know we got a couple from our listeners, uh, but what's your pay, play of the game? My big play was the deep, deep three from Tyrese that turned a 57-56 deficit into a 59-57 Duke lead with six minutes to go. That was off of a offensive rebound. I forget if I think it might have been Ryan Young who picked off that offensive board. I forget off the top of my head. But that was a moment where I was watching this game. I said, okay, this is a potential turning point. If Duke doesn't score that possession and Clemson goes down and scores, it's a multi-score game with six minutes to go. Things feel a heck of a lot different. Obviously, that sort of got lost in the shuffle with the way that the game did go back and forth, and Duke wasn't able to capitalize off of that momentum, perhaps stretch it into a multi-score game on their count. Um, But if, if Tyrese doesn't make that very deep end of shot clock style three, we could be looking at a very different last five minutes of the game. It's funny. A lot of people wrote in about that. I thought that was my play of the game. And you mentioned that it was a, a you know, on an offensive rebound. It was on like a air ball that Ryan Young kind of caught. So it doesn't count. We, we close with zero second chance points because it didn't hit the rim and the shot clock was still going. It doesn't count as a second chance three, but it certainly felt like it. And it gave, you know, gave Duke new life as, again, we were battling back and forth. That was a, a very pivotal possession. I also just want to give a hat tip to Tyrese Proctor's two free throws at the end of the game because, hey, look, we're we're talking about a win today because Tyrese Proctor hit those two free throws. So Sometimes the obvious choice is the right choice. Yeah, so you got you to gotta give it up for that. That's the, that's the, the actual play of the game. But as far as pivotal uh, turning, you know, not necessarily turning point, but a pivotal moment was definitely that three as the shot clock kicks zero, where he's falling away basically into John Shire's arms on the bench. Uh, since this is the last game of the week, we had the Louisville game. We had the Clemson game. We also are giving out player of the week honors. I am going to go with Mark Mitchell. Mark Mitchell, you mentioned the top of the broadcast. He, look, 35 points, 18 rebounds, one assist, 12 uh, and two steals on the week. 11 for 17 from the floor. He hit that one three. He was 10 for 13 from the line. He had a terrific week. And again, in a week where it wasn't the 20, he had, a, I think he had a 20 point output against Louisville, but it wasn't where he had the back-to-back 20 point games, but he provides offense where we need it. He provides defense where we absolutely need it. 
And he, I thought, was the most consistent player on this week. Who's yours? So we, we sort of flipped, flipped roles here. You gave me the easy one. The easy answer here is Tyrese Proctor, right? And I think he, this might be his best two-game stretch in a Duke uniform. 24 points against Louisville, 18 points, including obviously the two most important points against Clemson. But what struck out to me was he's playing much more efficiently. He shot 56% from the field against Louisville, 50% from the field against Clemson. 40% from three against Louisville, 66% from three. He's four from six from three against Clemson. That was huge, huge, huge. Uh, some turnovers, more turnovers than you would normally expect from a Tyrese Proctor. But again, I think that makes sense since he has been shouldering more of a scoring load. Regardless of that, I just that, that came to me as I'm just looking at the box score and went from eyes to mouth, even though we're talking about player of the week. But that does not... That does not undermine the fact that this is perhaps his most impressive two-game stretch as a Duke Blue Devil. And if we're looking for that guy who is the second option down the stretch, who does have some of that killer instinct, I think the leader in the clubhouse is Ty is Tyrese. He's showed that over the last couple of games. He's making more and more clutch shots. And that's something that I think we're going to need moving forward as we go into some tough road games, especially this week. I think it was the first time in his career that he hit four threes in consecutive games. So shout out to Tyrese Proctor. I think that's a great pick as well. Hey, let's leave this in the past. We'll take a quick break on the other side. We traveled down to Virginia Tech in less than 48 hours. What do we need to do? Beat the Hokies. Find out after this. This episode of the Duke Basketball Roundup is sponsored by BetterHelp. Springtime is the season that's supposed to feel like a new beginning. We have better weather, and it feels like everyone gains a boost of energy. However, for many, leaving winter behind doesn't always mean that their mood lightens up with the extra sunlight. We all carry around stress, and that stress can build as more events get added to your calendar. That's certainly true, Donald. And with the amount of social gatherings increasing with the improving weather and more daylight there's more pressure to be on when you're interacting with family friends co-workers even strangers even when stress has you a little bit down and for some getting advice from a therapist can help you tackle some of that stress without affecting you or the people you care about that's what better help is all about it's entirely online and it's designed to be therapy that's convenient flexible and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a professional licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime you want. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and find your social sweet spot. Visit betterhelp.com slash Duke Roundup today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Duke Roundup. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, we are back. And Scott, we turn our attention to the Virginia Tech Hokies. Of course, we go down to Castle Coliseum tomorrow night one of those Saturday, the first Saturday, Monday turnaround of the year for the blue devils. And before we get into Virginia tech specifically, I want to point out something that I saw on Twitter. Unfortunately, it was from a guy who was linked with Kentucky sports radio, but I thought it was a very good stat right now. And this was entering yesterday, top 10 teams, AP top 10 teams of which we will likely be back in the top 10 this week on Monday when this game is played. AP top 10 teams are now 17 and 27 this year. That is 38.6% on the road against unranked opponents. College basketball is just completely different sport than it has been in the past. If you go back to the 2018, 2019 season, 73%. AP top 10 teams won 73% of those games on the road this year. So far, 38.6%. So it's been super hard for teams that are good to win on the road at all in the season. Of course, in the ACC, it's always difficult to win on the road. And especially for Duke, it seems like every time we go down to Cass Coliseum, we have problems. Well, I'll say, I, I think the, the potential explanation for that statistic is with the transfer portal, it's really hard to be a bad high major team nowadays. Potentially, Louisville is the exception to the rule, unfortunately, for our pal Nolan Smith. But with the way the transfer portal works, you don't have a bad recruiting class and see that effect for multiple years. You don't have a bad year like, for instance, UNC did last year and mm-hmm. see that, you know, sit in the program for a couple years, a couple recruiting cycles. If you're a big name, if you have NIL dollars and the big guys in the big conferences have more NIL dollars than the small schools, you can go and get good players. So the difference between the ranked and the unranked teams within the big conferences is much smaller than it ever has been, uh, you know, especially before the NIL transfer portal era, which makes for some more fun basketball. It makes it a lot harder for the Dukes of the world, but it makes for a lot more good basketball that we're watching on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. And it also means that, you know, a lot of these players just aren't afraid of the big teams, right? When they come to town. So, and, and Virginia tech has never been, uh, uh, never, never been a team to shy away from the big moment, especially when Duke comes to Castle Coliseum. They are thirteen and seven on the year, five and four in the ACC. They're kind of right in the middle of the pack, tied with a bunch of teams at five and four. They're fifty first in Ken Palm, fifty fourth in the net. 
They're big wins. They have a few big wins this year. Uh, top 100 Kempom wins. Boise State, Iowa State, Clemson, NC State, and Boston College. Their losses this year are all to teams that are you know pretty good to really good. You know, South Carolina, FAU, Auburn, Wake Forest, FSU is probably the weakest of that group, Miami and Virginia. So when you look at Virginia Tech in the metrics on offense, they're doing a lot of things right. Effective field goal percentage. They are 57.3% first of the ACC. They are the second best three-point shooting team in the conference. They are the second best two-point, or actually the best two-point shooting team in the conference, shooting 56% from two. They are the best free-throw shooting team in the conference. They shoot 82% as a team. I see you shaking. Bonkers. That, 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 step, that stood out to me. They get to the line. They make their free throws. They move the ball well. 56.1% of their field goals made come with an assist. That's second in the ACC. Now, there are some things they don't do well on offense. They turn the ball over quite a bit. They're second to last in turnover percentage. They turn the ball almost 20% of the time. Offensive rebounding, second to last in the conference. Steal percentage, they don't get a lot of steals. They're 13th in the conference. Non-steal turnover percentage, 8.8%, 13th in the conference. So they turn the ball over quite a bit, and they have found it very difficult to take the ball away from the other team. That has been their issue when it comes to you know, just le- reaching out on de- on offense and on defense. On defense, again, they have some pretty good you know stats right here. They hold teams to thirty two percent from three. They make it where teams shoot a lot of threes to kind of get out of that funk. Uh, so they they lead. They're like third in the conference in teams shooting threes uh, compared to the number of field goals they attempt. But I think it starts with the fact that we have to really shut them down on offense. We cannot have them shooting threes. Hunter Couture. Everyone remembers Hunter Couture. We hate that name around here. Like it, it, it haunts our dreams from that ACC championship game a couple of years back. But Hunter Couture is still on this team. Sean Madula, Lynn Kidd, Tyler Nickel, MJ Collins. These are guys that are going to be names we hear throughout the course of the broadcast. But the thing about Virginia Tech that strikes me, not just this year, but in years past, is that they somehow, when, when Enter Sandman comes on in Castle Coliseum, they flip a switch, and especially in these big moments when Duke comes to town, they love playing us because they love seizing that moment. We have to seize it right back, and it's super hard for a team. I hate that this is the second of the back-to-back, of the Saturday-Monday back-to-back, because we're coming off the game. Of course, they are coming off the game as well, but we had to battle against Clemson, and now we have to travel down to a place where we traditionally do not play well against a team that always loves to play us well, and loves to shoot us out of the gym. This is a game that will get ugly early if Duke does not bring energy from the opening tip. That is that is without fail. Every single time we play Virginia Tech, we start out slow. They have energy. They gain momentum through guys shooting threes. And then all of a sudden, we're playing catch-up very quickly. We cannot play catch-up against the Hokies. There are two road games that no matter the season, no matter the timing, if I see that on the schedule, I chalk that up as a loss preseason. And that's at Virginia Tech, and that's at NC State. For oh, whatever funny. reason. We have, those, we have those games this year. Funny. Yeah, it's very unfortunate. But but those, at least, you know, in in my time, you know, analyzing things have been the, you know, the two biggest house of horrors for Duke. So like you said, it is very unfortunate timing. You know, not only is it the quick turnaround game, but it's the trap game before UNC as well. A couple of things about this particular Virginia Tech team 
give me a give me some inclination that maybe things could be different. The first is this is a very top heavy Virginia Tech team. The two names, the two marquee names that Duke fans know, Sean Padula and Hunter Couture, they're shouldering a heck of a lot of the scoring load. Padula is almost 16 points a game. Couture is almost 14 points a game. I think this might, we just talked about how Jalen Blakes didn't see the court yesterday. This could be an interesting Jalen Blakes game. This could be an interesting, put Jalen Blakes in, have him just hound Sean Padula for five minutes at a time. Because you mentioned the turnovers. A lot of those are from Padula. He's averaging almost four turnovers a game. Now, that's partially okay. He's in his hand quite a bit, too. Right? Exactly. Like, Tour is not bringing the ball up and doing, like, the LeBron James point forward and taking a shot. He's he's doing the J.J. Redick style, moving around the court to try and get open. And he's, like, you know, kind of like a Clay Thompson. He will not dribble if he needs if he doesn't have to. He's going to try and catch and shoot from three every single time. Exactly. So I think that, you know, that's a potential opportunity for some creative defensive matchups to try to see if we can't force Sean Padula into some challenges. Uh, the only other guy who's averaging more than 10 points a game is you mentioned Lynn Kidd. He's a little bit of an interesting guy when you look at things. He's only playing 24 minutes a game, so he's super efficient. I looked at him. I, I thought he must have been a transfer because I didn't remember his name much at all last year or the year before. But he's been at Virginia Tech for three years. He played in 34 games last year. He was just, though, another bench body. He was only averaging 13 minutes a game. He averaged five points a game under year. But, man, has he taken things up another notch this year. Like I said, 14 points a game in 24 minutes. He has been super, super efficient and provided them a bit of an inside presence that we sort of don't typically associate with Virginia Tech. The thing that gives me a little bit of optimism going into this game is that there's a huge drop-off on this Hokie team after those three guys. Their fourth leading scorer, Tyre Nickel, who we might recall used to wear a particularly ugly shade of blue. He's averaging nine points a game. He's shooting well. He's shooting almost 40% from, from three. That was his scouting report going into his time at UNC. Below that, no one's averaging more than six points a game. The other thing, no one's averaging more than 4.1 rebounds a game. Outside of Kid, this is a very sort of, you know, dispersed rebounding team. Uh, this is a very sort of dispersed scoring team outside of those top three or four. So this is an opportunity for, for Coach Shire to give Tyrese Proctor to Sean Padula matchup to give Jared McCain the Hunter Couture matchup and really challenge them to shut guys down defensively. I would not be shocked if those are the matchups going in because Tyrese's length can give a guy like Padula trouble. And we've seen Jared just be an energizer bunny running all over the floor defensively. If anyone is going to guard the Clay Thompson type role that Couture serves, I think McCain might be able to do that. This is a game I think will be one on the defensive end. Duke can score. They, Kyle Filipowski should have plus matchups in this game. Mark Mitchell will almost certainly have plus match, matchups in this game. There really isn't a true power forward type, or especially a power forward type that can guard off the dribble that uh, can match up with Mark Mitchell. Offensively, I'm not overly worried. It's defensively. 
can Duke prevent those crazy, you know, three-point shooting barrages that Virginia Tech is prone to? If Duke can come out and make someone else beat them, make someone besides Padula, Padula or Couture beat Duke, much easier said than done, much easier said on a podcast than done on the floor. Mm-hmm. But if Duke can do that, this is a, this becomes a winnable game. So you mentioned some of the matchups, right? And I think one thing to note is that Virginia Tech is much smaller than some of the teams that we have seen in the past couple of weeks. Sean Batula, 6'1", Lynn Kidd, 6'10", Hunter Couture is 6'3", Tyler Nichols, 6'7", MJ Collins is 6'4". After that, you have a couple of guys that are 6'9", but really every – like. Lynn Kidd is is far and away the biggest guy they have in the roster. That means that I kind of expect us to start out at least the game very small, right? We're going to have the four guard set up with Kyle Filipowski in the middle. Mark Mitchell will kind of be that wing guy. Mark Mitchell is going to be the X factor here on offense, especially again, if he gets out to those hot starts that he's been, we've been seeing from him in the last few games, get, you know, 10 points in the first half just by being open. That's going to be great. But I think the key, as you mentioned, is on defense, our guys are going to have to come in. We, I, I think we will see Jalen Blakes in this game uh, as opposed to against Clemson because I think, like you said, he matches up quite well with some of the guards and he can just get in somebody's grill and never leave their sight. I think also an X factor in this game when he does come into the game is Sean Stewart. I think Sean Stewart yep. would match up very well with some of these bigs that they have. I, I say bigs in air quotes because, again, after Link Kid, they don't really have a lot of, of length. I think that is where he can come in and maybe – show some athleticism to kind of hold the hold the the paint down when guys need to take a rest. The one thing that I do not want to see us do is get into foul trouble because yep. again it seems like against Virginia Tech we always have some key player in foul trouble and that alters the lineup every single time. I want to again when we have the fast start and we have the the, the energy that's one thing, but we also need to keep our guys on the floor because if we do these rotations work in our favor. But if you get a Cal Filipowski out of the game or something like that, these these rotations change drastically, and that advantage would then go to Virginia Tech. And you mentioned this the the insane free throw percentage numbers that this team has as a, as a team, but I want to reemphasize that because it's it's pretty nuts. Virginia Tech's top six scores are all shooting higher than eighty percent from the free throw line. Their worst free throw shooter amongst their top seven scorers is Potat, who's shooting 75% from the free throw line. Lynn Kidd, their center, is 88% from the free throw line. These are abnormal numbers. And this is something where the worst case scenario for Duke is if we get in foul trouble early, not only because of what it does to our player availability, but if we put the Hokies in the bonus, that's not a good sign. We're not going to get many missed front ends of one and ones that are going to give us some free possessions. That's not going to happen against this team the way they shoot free throws. That's something that is just is such an outlier in the modern game of college basketball that I think it really bears emphasis. It's something that makes it, this is a close game down the stretch. You don't want to be coming back against the Virginia Tech team. You're not going to make up much ground if you're having to follow them under a minute to go. And I think the the key for that, right, is they're not actively seeking to go to the line, right? It's not like they're just hunting for, for to get fouled so they can go to the line and hit these free throws. They're still in the course of their offense, but when you do foul them, 
yeah, they're going to the line, they're making their free throws, and it's and and so we don't want to get into a game where we're shooting, getting them, sending them to the line too many times because they're going to knock them all down. Those are just free points that we're giving them, and that again keeps them close. So I hope the energy's there again. I hope we stay out of foul trouble, and really, I think for certain key guys, if we can get them active early on offense, that will set the tone for the game and make Virginia Tech have to adjust to what we're doing. We take the game to them, not the other way around. So, again, that is on Monday night. Uh, I think it's an ESPN game, but Monday night, yep. 7 o'clock, we are at Virginia Tech. Scott, anything else before we get up out of here? This is going to be a big week, sir. This is the week yeah. where where we see whether this Duke team has what it takes to meet the lofty aspirations that we saw preseason. And it may not even be, I'm going to be honest, it may not even be wins and losses this week. I think we're going to learn a lot about this Duke team in terms of how they perform and two road games that on paper you might be able to chalk up as losses. There's a big difference between this Duke team going one and one this week and that loss being a close loss versus going one and one or zero and two where we just get blown out of the building in one or both of these games. And and that's a possibility. We talked about the history against Virginia Tech. UNC is playing real well. So this is something where, again, you're, we're, you guys are going to preview the UNC game more in detail later. But we're going to learn a lot about this team this week. And it's something that we might look back on in, a, in you know six weeks when we're going into March Madness and saying, this is when this Duke team either turned on the Jets or this is when this Duke team sort of became what it was. Yeah, it's uh, as the calendar switches from January to February, it feels like the true midpoint of the ACC slate of games. And yeah, very fewer, bigger weeks than this one, especially again, you go to Virginia Tech, you go to UNC in the same week. Again, I know there'll be a five day break between those two games, but yeah, this is a huge week to show everyone where Duke basketball really is at this point in the season and what they need to do to stay right at the top of the of the standings in the ACC. But that will do it for episode number 587 of the Duke Basketball Roundup. Scott Rich, as always, thank you for joining me, man. Appreciate you. Happy Thanks Sunday. for having me. Go Lions. Go Lions, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we will be back very, very soon after it, it will be probably on Tuesday to recap the Virginia Tech game. But until then, he's Scott Rich. I'm down the line. And for Jason Evans, somewhere in Antarctica, this is now the Duke band to play us out and take us home.